You know, I hope that you just encountered God. You know, the, the music that this team generously and with excellence provides us is an opportunity to press in to the presence of God, to see the glory of Christ manifest before the eyes of our soul. And if I could play the prophet, prophet for a moment, some just did that. Others just whatever, song, 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 song. Can I challenge you? Increasingly, let's be a people who recognize each song as a gift from the Lord, an opportunity for us to tune out distractions and press in to the presence and the beauty of Almighty God in worship. So, uh, we are in a series called Apex. Were you aware of that? The Exhilaration of Knowing God, a study of this mountain called Sinai. Where the people of God gathered, they camped, they lived there with the expressed purpose of knowing this God, of building a friendship. And that's what we want to do. We have become convinced that life at its best is not found in things or recreation or ownership or prestige. Life at its best is found in friendship with God. And we've said, Lord, can we know you? Teach us at Sinai how we can know you. Well, I wanted to start, I kind of shared the first week of this series, actually, of my son, Jake, eight years old, his fondness for climbing snow mountains, remember, at uh, Hobby Lobby. Anyways, Jake uh, just loves it, and that was evidence this week again. I went to school to pick him up one day. My son has severe ADHD, and so school is a hard experience for him. And to watch Jake come out of school at the end of a day is a glorious picture. It's like a man being released from prison. You know, Jake is just, oh, you know, he smells the air and he's just elated and he runs to me and he gives me a hug. And he he notices that by the sidewalks where they've shoveled, there are big mounds of snow. And he says, dad, can I climb the mountain. And I'm, yes, Jake, climb away. And my son, you know, drops his backpack. And right there, as other kids are coming out, Jake is climbing and having a great time. And as I watch, a teacher comes over to him with a stern look on her face. Can't, I'm not close enough to hear, but I can tell it's not good. And Jake's countenance chops, and he comes over to me like this. And I'm like, uh-oh, did you get in trouble? Yeah, he said, there's a rule, Dad, that you can't play in the snow unless you have snow pants and snow boots. And he had jeans and gym shoes on. And I'm I'm sorry, buddy. And he looked at me with deep sincerity. He goes, Dad, I can't stand rules. (laughs) Anybody relate? He said, he said, Dad, I just want to do what I want to do. And I thought, wow, that was profound, Jake. You just expressed the cry of every human being on planet Earth. I just want to do what I want to do. Rules. We, we really have a hard time, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. We, we don't like rules. And yet, when we study Mount Sinai, we can't get away from rules, can we? When you think of Moses on Mount Sinai, probably the most common image that comes to mind of people, you know, is they they see Moses coming down from the mountain carrying the big stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. Maybe you saw the movie. 
And when we see these rules, we realize the rules are part of the Bible. They're part of the Sinai narrative. They are unavoidable. And the rules cause a lot of people to reject Christianity entirely. Do you know that? There are some who look at the Christian faith and they say, do I really need some God who's just going to lay on me in a horrible amount of rules? And to some, they're turned away from Christianity. To others of us, we just ignore them. To others, the, the rule-heavy faith, it just discourages us. We're still Christians, but our enthusiasm regarding God is tempered or it shrinks a bit because of all these rules. We need to talk about the rules. We need to study them today. We need to understand them and see if, rather than turning us away from God, they might just make us love him more. Shall we? So we're in the book of Exodus, second half of it. And we last week left Moses up on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time to be in the cloud, surrounded by the presence of of God. And the question is, Lord, what did he do for all that time up on top of this mountain? Rules. Shall we? Exodus 34, verses 27 and 28. The Lord said, here, this is him on top of the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, write, get out the old parchment and pen, write down all these instructions for they represent the terms of my covenant with you in Israel. And Moses was up on that mountain with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. And at that time, he, being God, wrote the terms of the covenant, that is the Ten Commandments, on stone tablets. Now, this is a bit confusing at first because you're like, all right, I see that it's all about rules up there. But here it's saying, God says to Moses, I want you to write. But when it comes to the stone tablets, the he, we know that means God because the context says that God actually inscribed them with his finger. God miraculously carved out the words of the Ten Commandments on stone. And so who's writing? Is it Moses? Is it God? Well, both, actually. As far as the top ten of the rules, the Ten Commandments, God wrote them. But did you know that up on the top of Mount Sinai, it was far more than Ten Commandments that God gave? How many did he give? Are you ready? 613. Fantastic! You know? And, and the vast majority, 603 of them to be exact, were written down by Moses as God gave them on parchment. That's how they did it back then. 613 rules. And if you've read the Old Testament law, that's what it's called, the law, it's kind of weird. Okay, it's real weird. You know, there's stuff about animals you shouldn't eat, and there's stuff about clothes you, you shouldn't wear, and all of these strange rituals. And to, again, many people, they look at that and they just, they close their Bible and they go, I don't get it. What is up with this God? Folks, we need to get it. We can't look away. We cannot ignore the Old Testament law and the 613 laws that were given at Mount Sinai. 
We, as God followers, must press our minds and our attention into those laws, seeking understanding and maybe seeking great blessing as a result. So you ready? I wanted to provide a threefold category system to help us understand the, the law and its particular application for us today, all right? The first of the three uh, types of law is the moral law, and this is the most basic as represented by the Ten Commandments. These are the group of laws that describe godly morality. They tell you how to be right, how to treat God right, how to honor God, how to love God. Some of them show us how to love people, to treat them right, to honor people. And God says, this is morality. And God says, I want you to follow. And the the, the moral laws in the Ten Commandments and beyond are universal and eternal in their application. They don't go away. When we look at the moral law that's there, we say, yes, I must rise up and live by that high ideal. All right? But it's not all moral law in the Old Testament law. Some of those 613 are ceremonial laws. If you'll notice, there's a lot of ritual and ceremony in the Old Testament law that were designed to teach Uh, First of all, you see all the feasts and festivals. That's part of the ceremonial law. Those feasts and festivals filled the annual calendar, and the design there was to keep the people in touch with God's faithfulness of the past. They were memorials to remind them of how good God is. Some of the other ceremonial laws uh, reminded them that God is good, and they're supposed to be like God, not like God. People. Those laws included dietary restrictions and clothing, you know, certain uh, woven fabrics. Though they were popular with the pagan nations, God said, I don't want you to dress the same way. I don't want you to eat the same way as a reminder that you're not supposed to be the same way. You're supposed to be different than everybody else. You're not supposed to use them as your example. You're supposed to use God as your example. And so the people were taught and challenged to rise up and be like God. Other ceremonial laws included all the cleanliness procedures. Uh, They taught the people that though you're supposed to be different, you're not different. You're unclean. You're a sinner. You've blown it. And they had to go through all of these rituals in order to be forgiven and to get clean. Part of the ceremonial law was the sacrificial system where the innocent lamb or other animal was, they'd place their hands symbolically transferring their guilt to the guilt of, to the animal. The animal bore their guilt and then the animal would die on the altar. What was this pointing to? The whole sacrificial system pointed to the coming of Jesus. In fact, all of the ceremonial law was teaching people that God is holy and we are not, and we need a redeemer who solves this dilemma. It was teaching them and preparing them for the coming of the redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world on himself and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion. And when Jesus came, He spoke of the law. He said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. 
Jesus said, in him, the ceremonial law finds what it's been pointing to. And as a result, the New Testament makes it clear that we are not bound to keep the ceremonial law. That was all to get people ready for Jesus. And now that he has come and died and fulfilled what it was set to do, we no longer uh, have to keep the ceremonial law. Now, it's great for us to study it, when we study it and when we see what the people before Christ did in anticipation of him, it makes us all the more grateful for him and what he came to accomplish. And so we should study the ceremonial law and look what it taught. But because Christ has come and fulfilled it, we don't have to do it. All right? Third part is the judicial law. Part of the law of the 613 laws that were given are kind of like the constitution of the nation of Israel. If you'll recall, at Mount Sinai, the people, these ragtag bunch of refugees, of escaped slaves, were becoming a country, a nation. And as a new nation, they needed a constitution, a set of laws. And so part of what we see is judicial law, the the stuff that every nation needs as far as helping them understand how they can function well. Uh, Real practical, kind of funny sometimes. A lot of laws I saw about animals, you know, like if your bull gores your neighbor, that is their horn goes "Ah," into your neighbor's side. What is the penalty for that offense? There it is. It's in there. Uh, If if your uh, ox eats your neighbor's grass, what's the penalty? You can find it in the Bible. If their donkey falls in the hole you dug but forgot to cover it up, you're liable. And here's what the... It would be a very practical law. It goes beyond animals, though. It goes to protection of personal property and conducting of business and family law, marriage and children, and personal injury law. I mean, it's very, very practical. It's the constitution of a nation. Now, are we a part of the nation of Israel? We are not. And therefore, we are not held to that old constitution. Having said that, are we glad it's in the Bible? You bet. Because the very wisdom of God is seen in the principles that uphold those laws. So we may not need to carry out those specific laws, but we should study them in search of the eternal principle that it's based on, because that will serve us really, really well. So, moral, ceremonial, judicial. Moral, must follow it. Ceremonial, fulfilled in Jesus. Don't have to follow the letter, but we are blessed by the study of it. Judicial, no longer are we part of Israel, so we don't have to follow it, but we're blessed to study it and find the eternal principles it's based on. Okay? Now, let me shift from that understanding to the benefit of the law. If, if, if I'm going to make the case, and I am, that the law is a great gift from God, that we are blessed to have the 613 laws found in the Old Testament, how are they a blessing to us? As New Testament Christians, in what way is this Old Testament law supposed to serve us well? And if you allow me, I'd like to use some props to illustrate how the law can benefit us. And the first one... I have here is a telescope. Some call it a spyglass, a a handheld telescope. And the first benefit is this, that the law is like a telescope 
showing us the heart, the glory, the beauty of God himself. The law is like a telescope showing us the heart of God. Did you know that the Old Testament law will show you a picture of God? Just like a telescope can look out, you know, you think it's a star, but if you could see it better, you'd realize that it's a planet with rings around it, and you, you know, you wouldn't see it except for the telescope, which brings the beauty, the glory into focus. God is that way. We long to know him. We want to see his beauty, his glory. And the law was given to us to help us see what God is like. In the book of Exodus, chapter 33, let me show you what Moses said. Uh, 33, verse 13, Moses cried out, God, let me know your ways. I want to know your law, God, please. Do you beg God for more rules? Moses is begging God for rules. Show me your ways so that I may understand you more fully. Moses got it. Moses realized that every single law was chosen by God because it reflects who he is. Do you realize that? Laws are not the Lord. The Lord didn't say, ah, let me just pick some rules. I don't know. Well, let's go with that. No. God says, I want my law to be a reflection of the way I live. I'm going to call my people to live in a way that is really born right out of my nature. And so when, when God says, I want you to be, don't commit adultery. Uh, God's reason there is because he is faithful. He honor, he is loyal. He calls us his bride and he is the husband. And he says, people, I will be devoted to you. I will not be unfaithful to you. And I want you to rise up and be faithful to your spouse. When, when the Bible says, don't lie, did God just say, oh, you know, lying kind of bugs me. Let's just not, no. God says, I am the truth and devoted to the truth. God says, I am a truth speaker and I'm calling my people to be the same. When God says, don't covet, this chronic dissatisfaction with life and wanting what everyone else has, God says, I don't live that way. God is deeply content, and he wants us to step into his way. And so if we look to the Old Testament law with this question, and that is, Lord, show me yourself. Give me a glimpse of your heart in these laws. The laws can be for us a window into the very nature of God. Okay, so that's number one that the, the laws are like a telescope helping us to see the heart of God. The second is this. The law is like a plumb bob. Do you, know, do you even know what a, what a plumb bob is? Here's a plumb bob. The law is like a plumb bob showing us our sin. Carpenters know what a plumb bob is. They, they use one of these babies. It's a weight that hangs on a chain or a string, and they use it to determine what is straight up and down, what is vertical. Uh, you know, a carpenter will be building a wall, and without a comparison or something, to, a plumb bob to compare it to, he'll say, yeah, that wall looks really good straight up and down. And then he takes out the plumb bob, a perfect standard by which he can measure it, and he goes, hey, it is way off, and I didn't even realize it until I compared it to perfection. Morally speaking, the law is perfect. 
and we can determine our own perfection or lack of perfection, namely sin, by comparing ourselves to the law. You say, all of these laws, are, are, we're going to fail in our effort to keep them. And you're, you're absolutely right. The moral law will show how we are failures. In fact, in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 20, it says, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The implication there is that without the law, we wouldn't even realize that we're sinners. And that's true. Human beings, you and I included, we have an amazing propensity to overrate our own morality. When we talk to people, our natural inclination is just to say, I am great. Wow, I impress myself. You know, we just have this really high view of ourselves. But when we are given the law, when we are given those standards by which God's very nature is reflected, we put our lives up next to God and we're like, ay, 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 I am not like that at all. I didn't realize what a mess I was until I saw the law and realized that in comparison, I got a big problem going on. And you say, oh, so God wants to make us feel guilty. Is that the goal? Is that we'd really feel awful about ourselves? Well, at first, yes. Here, here, let me show you another verse. This is found in Mark 2, verse 17. It says, Jesus teaching. Jesus said, guys, I'm like a doctor of, so, of the soul, the great physician, Jesus said. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Sick, sick people. He goes, I have come to call those who are sick or those who know they are sinners. Jesus looked at the self-righteous, those who thought they were perfect, and he goes, I can't help you because you don't see the need. Jesus said, if you're going to connect with me in the miraculous, transforming, forgiving power I've come to bring, the first step is you've got to see the need. You've got to realize your own sickness, your own sin. And so Jesus looked at all the self-righteous and he said, I'm sorry. Your first step is you've got to go to the law and realize your heart is so far from perfect. And when you see your sin, run to me and then I can help. And so there's a journey that the law starts us on. It's this realization that, wow, you know, sometimes people become a Christian and they expect to think, well, I'm growing, I'm growing. They become a Christian. Instead of growing, they're growing in their realization of what a wretch they are. Isn't that true? And that's okay because God's gracious and forgiving. And more and more we say, wow, I, I am but a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm seeing it more clearly every day. The law is like a plumb bob. We put it up our lives next to it and we realize we are a mess. Thirdly, lastly, the law is like a compass. Uh, a compass. The law is like a compass showing us the way to live. You know, a compass is really important. If you're out at sea or if you're in a forest without paths or roads, you can get lost, can't you? You can end up going in circles. I once did that. I was lost in the woods, and I started to recognize things going, oh, man, I'm getting nowhere. And a compass helps you figure out, all right, all right. It orients you and points you in the right direction so that you can go the way that will get you where you want to go. 
And so many people in life are wandering adrift. They're walking in circles, endlessly seeking satisfaction and purpose, and the path they're taking is pointless. The law, the way of God, the way of the kingdom of God is revealed in the law. That moral law and the morality behind the judicial law and the ceremonial law, the spiritual principles that are taught there, they all describe the way God lives and the way he invites us to live in his kingdom where he is king. And he says, by my spirit, with my help, my followers will increasingly conform their thought life, their spoken life, their actions, not to the ways of the world, but to the ways of God. And like a compass, the law shows us how the best way to live really is. So, with these three, you say, does it really work? You know, can a passage, a law from the Old Testament, really be like a telescope showing me the heart of God and like a plumb bob showing me my sin and like a compass showing me a better way to live? And I thought, rather than talk about it, I should test it. Does that sound fair? And so I, I picked a rather obscure law from the Old Testament that I'd like to go through with you. And it's uh, Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 and 2. I don't know if you've ever come across this law before, but let me read it. Ready? It's part of the judicial law. This is part of the business-conducting laws that governed the nation of Israel. At the end of every seventh year, you must cancel your debts. This is how it must be done. Creditors must cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. Interesting. So you've been having your Bible study, you've been, or maybe you just opened the Bible, or you're working through the book of Deuteronomy, and you've come across this law, and you just react to it. And people react differently. <laughs> Those who have a ton of credit card debt are like, that law is beautiful. Oh, man, why didn't I live then? And others, you know, a little bit, Different perspective, like, no, that law's ridiculous. You know, people need to be held accountable for the commitments that they've made. Letting them off the hook just creates a bunch of crazy, irresponsible people. This, uh, you know, I don't know. You react to it at first. But getting past our initial reaction, let's use these three criteria and let's start with the telescope and say, in what way is this law? a telescope that helps us see the heart of God. And so who wrote the law? God did. What kind of God writes a crazy law like this? God says, I got an idea. At the end of seven years, there are going to be certain people that are just crushed with debt. They've lived irresponsibly. They've gotten themselves into a world of mess. God says, I have a law. Let's forgive them their debt. What kind of God makes a law like that? A God who just has a thing for forgiveness. A God who's filled with compassion for those who are in trouble. And a God who says, you know what, I'm, I just have a bent, this love. And that is to give people 
blessings that they don't deserve. Does a, does a person deep in debt deserve to have their debt removed? Absolutely not. But God says, let's do it anyway. And you say, but, but the poor guy who loaned the money, he gets messed up. He loses, so the other person gains. Yep. God says, that's how I run. In fact, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, who lost? God lost. God died on the cross in bodily form. God lost so we could gain. And the whole cross of Christ is an example of this same propensity of God's heart that is being illuminated in this law. And that is our God is crazy gracious in forgiving those who have a lot against them. You, you glad God's that way? Do you wish he weren't? <laughs> Let me just put it this way. If he weren't that way, you and I would be in big, big trouble. This law brings us to worship and praise God for his grace that's revealed. Well, how about the, the, the plumb bob? How about this? Uh, in what way does this law reveal our own sin? Now you say, but wait a minute, this is the judicial law, so I don't have to follow this. If someone owes me money, we're not part of Israel, so I'm not required to forgive them their debt. And you're absolutely right. But we are required to carry out the morality that the law is based on. And what is that morality? That we are to be like God, gracious and forgiving. So let's think about that. Let's put our lives up to that standard, that expectation. You know, we've all got people who owe us or have wronged us. You got people who at work who have wronged you. People in your family who have wronged you, disappointed you. You know, when you, when you see somebody who's wronged you, you know, your, I believe my natural inclination, I won't assume you're the same way, though you are. I... Uh, I compare myself to them, and I'm like, I can't believe them and what they've done. I would never do that. And we get self-righteous as we look at what they've done. And then we take this law, and we say, all right, the Lord just says, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. And we put ourselves up to that, and we realize, I don't forgive nearly as quickly as God does. I am not plumb. I've got a bitter root in my heart, and I fail to forgive. And we find ourselves turning to God saying, oh, Jesus, forgive me. I'm not like you. And what happened? We had just been self-righteous a few minutes ago, but the law served us so well and made us realize that we too are sinners in need of the grace of God, just like the person who sinned against us. And the law has brought us to our knees, taken away that arrogant, self-righteous attitude. And the law has brought us to a place of realization that we, like everybody else, are sinners in need of God's grace. The law served as a plumb bob, showing us our sin. And then lastly, what, what about the compass? The, the, the law, does it serve us as showing us a better way to live? Again, we don't have to carry out the letter of the law and forgive everybody every seven years the financial money they owe us. But we do have to carry out the heart 
behind it and be people of radical grace and forgiveness. The world doesn't teach you that way. The world says, if they mess with you, you let them have it. Don't let anybody turn you into a doormat. Don't you let anybody take advantage of you. No one's going to stick up for yourself. You take the place of sticking up for your own rights. Right? That's the way of the world. And God says, often my spirit will lead you to radically forgive those who don't deserve to be forgiven. It's not a way of life that we would have ever come up with on our own. And yet God says, it's the way of my kingdom and it's the way I'm calling you to live. And so you realize the principle of radical grace and you step into it. And what do you do? When you've ever forgiven somebody, if you've done it before, what happens? The sense of you're like, oh my, this is the way to live. My heart is coming alive. I am tasting of the divine way of life. Thank you, God. Your path is a better way. Folks, I pray that increasingly like the psalmist, rather than hating the law, you ever, you ever read the psalmist again and again, they say, oh, how I love your law. How I delight in your law. How precious is your law to me. I pray increasingly we will say the same and say, Lord, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing that it's like a telescope that shows me your heart and it's like a plumba that shows me my sin and it's like a compass that shows me a better way to live. I have a guy in my small group. His name is Mike DeSanto. Some of you may know Mike. Mike has had an interesting journey as it relates to the law, both God's law and society's law. And I thought it would be helpful to us all if he shared his story. Uh, hi, my name is Mike. I attend the 95th campus. In high school, I got caught up in partying and um, having a wild time. And within a short period of time, I found myself uh, arrested twice. I prayed to God for mercy, and he answered my prayers. Um, I made contact with a family friend who was a lawyer, and he assured me that everything was going to be okay, that I would survive. He stood next to me in court in Wheaton, and, um, and sure enough, um, over time, my troubles subsided. I remember being back home in my kitchen uh, with a friend and my dad, and my friend telling my dad, you know, poor Mike. Poor Mike. He's uh, always in trouble. Um, he's not doing anything different than everyone else is doing. He's just the one that gets caught. And I'll never forget my dad saying, you know, it's, it's not luck. I, I pray um, for him and that he will be caught and that he will be held accountable for his decisions. I moved on to college, and, and while there, I uh, decided that I wanted to be an attorney to, to help other people. My senior year, I landed an internship with the local state's attorney's office. Uh, but in truth, I was still living in disobedience to God. On my second day on the job, I was invited out with the attorneys after work. I was the last one to leave the bar. And when I returned home, I was sitting in my TV room. My roommate busted through the door and ran up the stairs. Within minutes, there were 10 squad cars in my front yard. It turned out my roommate had been stopped driving the wrong way down a one-way street. And because he was drunk, he decided to flee the scene, but had forgotten that his driver's license was in the front seat. 
with about two days of legal experience under my belt, I went outside and, and thought that I would tell the police about the Constitution and how to do their jobs. In no time, I found myself under arrest and being transported to jail. I was put in a cell about 3 a.m. with an old man who was sitting on a murder charge. Uh, he was on the bottom bunk and I climbed up to the top bunk where there was no mattress and no pillow and I cried out to God. After bonding out, I was told by the state's attorney's office that it wouldn't be appropriate for me to continue to work there, being that they were prosecuting me. I scheduled a meeting with the dean of the law school and told him about my past and asked him about my chances of being licensed as an attorney. The dean told me that if I was going to make the law my profession and hold others accountable to the law, it was important that I myself respected the law and held myself accountable to it. I knew that was true not only regarding man's law, but God's law. I had long lived in disobedience to God's law, believing that I could sin and receive forgiveness. Um, I began to understand that by sinning, I wasn't just breaking that law, but I was violating God himself. At the same time, my high school girlfriend was growing in her faith, and she began to really hold me accountable um, for the things that I was doing and asking me if I was really the man that I said and professed to be. So, of course, I married her. I began to grow in my relationship with the Lord. I found a wonderful church in Chicago. I was blessed with an incredibly godly wife and uh, several children who are not godly yet. Um, I was hired on with a firm in Chicago and eventually moved back to Naperville. While living in Naperville, an opportunity opened up um, for a prosecutor job with the city of Naperville and I applied. At the interview, I laid it again all on the table and told them how much it would mean to me to not only serve my community, but to serve the community in which I grew up. Uh, by God's grace and, and, and through his blessing, I, I obtained that job. And today I find myself um, often standing in the same courtroom in Wheaton that I once stood in as a defendant. Um, same place, but a bit different perspective. Now I regularly have the pleasure of serving my community and loving my neighbors. I need to bear witness to the good news, not with just my words, but with my actions. I realized I was saved not to do as I please free of consequences, but to love and serve the Lord out of obedience to his word.